Okay, I think we'll go ahead and start. I took six minutes extra and I gave back only two. I'm cheating, but <laughs> I think we'll go ahead and start. Only because we'll have to close at uh, 4.45. Yeah. So, yeah, I'll just keep it up there. Thank you. The next question I asked was, what is the message and mission? Give it to me in a nutshell. So I made the nutshell because there's no nutshell somebody else made, so I had to just put it down there. And here it is in a nutshell. <clears throat> Hinduism to show the way to ultimate truth, merging of the human atma or soul into the super soul or Brahman. In other words, I'll show you the truth, how to merge into the super soul so that you can break the cycle of life, which is birth and death and birth and death and just the whole cycle keep on going. We'll break it. Once you break it, you go to the abode of Brahma. And I'll show you the way to that truth. Buddhism, for enlightenment I was born. That's the words of Gautama Buddha, for the good of all that lives. I was the super enlightened one, and therefore I can teach you how to be enlightened. Islam, for Muslims, it, it which is the Quran, is the infallible word of God revealed to the Prophet Muhammad by the angel Gabriel. So what is the message of Muhammad? To bring the word of God, which angel Gabriel gave him, to the world. Judaism, you shall therefore keep my, which is Jehovah's, statutes and Jehovah's judgments, which if a man does, he shall live. So what was Moses' aim? To bring the statutes and commands of God, clarify it, so that if you do that and keep to it, you will live. Then we come to this man. He uses one some of the most unique words that any founder has ever used. He said, I am. I am the way. Every other founder could say, let me show you the way. It's here. These are the rules. And that's the way. This person said, I am the way. Gautama Buddha said, look, I was enlightened. And I will show you how to get enlightened. And this man said, I am the light. Muhammad said, it is the word of God that I will bring to you because the angel Gabriel gave it to me. This man said, I am that word. I am the life. You will keep those rules and get life. I am that life. They are absolutely unique compared to any ancient writing compared to any statement by any founder on earth. No founder ever dared to be equal to his own message. Every other founder said, I will show you the way. Let me introduce the doctrines and the philosophies and the truths about this religion. This man said, let me introduce myself to you. It is so different. There's nobody else who has ever said these words. So let's compare, making two comparisons. One with Gautama Buddha. At the age of 29, Gautama Buddha left his home in search of truth. And for six years, he searched for light. For six years, he practiced such austerities. 
he would go just one meal a week, sometimes one meal in two weeks. And hungry as he was, sometimes when people would give him rice to eat, he would pick just two of those grains of rice to eat. Because he was practicing austerity. He was starving himself so that he would finally somehow, somehow gain light. He would lie down and never get up, stand up and never sit down, pull out the hair of his beard and the hair of his head. He would lie down on a couch of thorns, beat himself, hoping somehow, someday that he would be enlightened. And one night after six years, under a ficus tree in Bodh Gaya, the eastern part of India, in four successive stages, he claimed to be fully enlightened. Compare that with this man, Jesus. There is no record of him ever starving himself to look for light. He never beat himself, never pulled out the hair of his beard or the hair of his head. He never lay down on a couch of thorns. He simply said, I am the light. If Gautama Buddha was searching for the goal, this man stood up and said, I am the goal. I don't have to search for it. The other comparison is with Muhammad. One of the reasons they do call Muhammad the seal of the prophets is because of a very religious experience he had. It's called Isra, night journey. One night in 610 AD, he was woken up by angel Gabriel in Mecca and put on the heavenly horse Baruch and flown over to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. On the Temple Mount in Jerusalem was a ladder. The ladder had seven parts because each part would get him to one heaven. There are seven heavens and Allah lives at the level of the seventh heaven. Each heaven is presided over by a prophet. There was Abraham, there was John, there was Jesus, you know, each step. And angel Gabriel took Muhammad by the hand up the ladder, one, two, three, six, seventh heaven, and brought him back the same night. And when Muhammad told the people that this is what he had as an experience the night, they said, surely this is an unparalleled experience. Nobody has ever been to the level of Allah. Therefore, we'll accept you as the seal of the prophets. Okay, let us accept that on face value. Although there is some question as to whether it was a real journey or a mystical journey. Because his wife Aisha, when they asked her, she said, no, he was sleeping with me all the time here. But let's just take it at face value. That he did go up there through the seven heavens to the top and then came down that same night. If we are going to take his words at face value, let's take this man's word also at face value. In this story of Isra or night journey is a, a, an inherent confession. And the confession is simply this. Muhammad lived here and went for a visit there for a few hours and came back. And you want to contrast that with this man who said where he went for a visit, that's my home. I come from there. I live there and I came here for a visit. 
And sometimes we put all these founders together on the same place and then I say, you know, Muhammad, Jesus, everyone put them on the same place. No, sir. The origins and the direction of travel is exactly the opposite. Muhammad lived here, went there for a visit and came down. Jesus lived there, came down for a visit here. Now you tell me, who will know more about Louisville, Kentucky? A person who lives here? Or me, who drove in today from North Carolina, and suppose I wanted to see Louisville, I'll get into maybe one of the buses over here that take you for a little tour for four hours and then go back, running back to North Carolina. Who will know more about Louisville, Kentucky? Did you get the point? Who will know more about the nuances of the truth from a perspective of the supernatural, one who lives there or one who went there for a visit for four hours? Whose word would you take about the details of the truth about that place? It makes a big difference. He's the only one who said, I am. Nobody else dared to say those words. How about the teaching versus life? Now, this is what I call the acid test. Like I said, remember, I, I'm searching, so I want to know what kind of credibility they have. So, yes, sir, you brought some very nice teachings. I have one question for you. How did your life match your own teachings? Now, I don't know what your teachings really are, but I'll make your own teachings your own gauge. Because <laughs> I don't know how to interpret it. So, how did your, the teachings match life? In Hinduism, when a man gives up all varieties of desire for sense gratification, then he is says to be in pure transcendental consciousness. A person who is not disturbed by the incessant flow of desires can alone achieve peace. Um, sense gratification, desires, in all religious literature, nobody can escape the fact that these things also mean sexual gratification. It is there in all literature. It's very strong in all actually literature. So here's what they're saying. You must give up this sense gratification, then you will be in pure transcendental consciousness. I don't have the stories of all their authors, but we do have the story of Krishna, who was the eighth incarnate of the god Vishnu. He grew up among gopis. Gopi is a girl cowherd, and there were only girl cowherds around him when he grew up. And his favorite was a Radha. Radha was not his wife. Radha was married to Ayana Gosha. Look at these words here. When Ayana Gosha heard of Radha's adultery, he went in search of the couple. However, Krishna assumed the form of a goddess and they thereby escaped Ayana Gosha's wrath. What was Krishna doing? Fooling around with somebody else's wife. Actually, Krishna's story is a, a kind of an embarrassment to Hindu scholars because of his sexual exploits. He had lots of them written right through. He lived with them. He had a beautiful flute and he would play it so well that he would seduce the gopis around him. And then, then their husbands would, would get mad. And he would sometimes follow them to the river. There's a story very specifically described how he found out where they hid their clothes and he went and took all their clothes and climbed up a tree and said, now if you want your clothes, come and get them one by one. He is said to have married 16,000 wives and fathered 180,000 sons. 
not much time for transcendental meditation. (laughs) 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 And therefore Gautama Buddha, when he was a Hindu, and looked back at these sages and heroes, this is what he said. Our holy books tell us of God, sages, and heroes who, though high-minded, were addicted to sensuous passions. In other words, they could not match up to their own teachings. Buddhism is the same thing here. Here, venerable gentlemen said, Buddha, four rules about the offenses which deserve expulsion from the monastery. One, if a monk should have sexual intercourse with anyone. The fact is he was himself married. And he had a son, Rahula. Not only that, when he was born, a prophet came and told his dad that if you want your son to be a world emperor, then you must make sure he does never sets his eyes on old age, disease, death, or suffering. Four things. How do you avoid any of these? His father thought of a plan and made different palaces on the palace grounds. Stories. And kept him on the top stories of the palaces. Never let him come down. How do you entertain a young man? The writings tell us how it was done. He was surrounded by women minstrels. They entertained him with wanton swings, butterfly kisses, seductive glances. Thus he became captive of these women who are well versed in the subject of sensuous enjoyment and indefatigable in sexual pleasure. On the night of the renunciation, he awoke to find the female musicians sleeping, some with their bodies wet with trickling phlegm, some with their dresses fallen apart so as to plainly disclose their nakedness. That's a sexual orgy, and that's the description from the age of 16. Day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, for 13 years. And so he said when he was later on going for looking for light, he said, in fulfillment of my vows, I have plucked out the hair of my head and the hair of my beard, have gone down to the water punctually thrice before nightfall to wash away what? The evil within. I don't know clearly what Buddhism counts as evil, but they know. And whatever they count as evil was within him and needed washing away. In other words, he himself did not match up to what he himself had written down. Islam, then you may marry other women who seem good to you, two, three, or four of them. Chapter 4 is the place, the only place where this is mentioned as to how many wives a Muslim can have. So even in this country, although we, by law, it's monogamy, if you're a Muslim, you can marry more than one. The fact is, Muhammad had 11 wives. We, Allah, have given you, Muhammad, a glorious victory so that Allah may forgive your past and future. What? Sins. Now, I am not calling it sins. It is the Quran that is calling it sins. So whatever the Quran calls sins was found in Muhammad and it needed forgiveness. He still had not reached the goal. Now, Muhammad in Orthodox Muslim thought is called the perfect man. That means perfection as far as we can go. But still, with sins and also did he not find you in error and guide you. In other words, there were mistakes too. Judaism, thou shalt not kill, not commit adultery, nor bear, bear false witness. Moses, let's look at him. He looked this way and that way. When he saw no one, he killed him and hid him in the sand. What's that? Murder. Murder. Abraham, Hagar was not his wife. 
he went in Hagar and she conceived. What's that then? Adultery. And then he would tell a white lie. This towering prophet told a white lie to the neighboring king or leader and said, and so they had to tell him back, why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Because there were some, some problems that were coming on because of what had happened. So even Abraham did not catch a ma match up to what he had written or the, uh, the writings of the Jews. David, then David sent messenger, took her, who is her? Bathsheba. Bathsheba is not his wife. So what is that? Adultery. And then he sends the husband off to be killed in battle. Specific instructions. See that he dies. Look, a mafia also wouldn't do that. And finally it was done. What do you call that today? Premeditated, cold-blooded murder. That's what it is. None of the three Hebrew greats were able to keep their record clean. Till we come to this man. I have here 12 statements. Starting with one, Pilate was a Roman. There was no love lost between a Roman and a Jew. They hated one another. And yet, this is what the Roman governor said. Having examined him in your presence, I have found no fault in this man. In the book of John, he says, I find no fault in him at all. And then he quotes Herod. Herod also didn't find, because I sent you back to him. And then his own wife wrote a little note to him during the trial and said, watch out. Watch what you do to that man because I've seen him in a dream and he is a just man. The Roman centurion at the cross, when he saw what was happening, the expression on his face and the events there, he said, certainly this was a righteous man. In another place he says, certainly this was the son of God. The thief on the cross, he turned to the other thief and said, look, we are dying for what we did. But this man has done how much? Nothing wrong. These people looked at him from a distance. Maybe heard stories about him. How about somebody really close? John, the disciple. Many people say, yeah, he was his friend and so he wrote it down. Sure, that's a possibility. He wrote it down because he was his friend. But look, who knows more about him? You or his friend? Think about it. Who knows more about the president? You or his wife? Don't, don't simply cast them off as if they were all liars. It is possible that he wrote it because he is friend. It is also possible that he would have the most authentic story about him. And after watching him from day after day, night after night, week after week, month after month, for three and a half years, the conclusion of three and a half years of watching every day was in him, there is no sin. Disciple Peter, Christ without blemish and without spot. Look at the words that they are using. How about this disciple? Probably Paul. All points tempted as we are yet without sin. Number nine is an extremely impressive statement. Jesus is the only founder of a major religion who is mentioned in the writings of another major religion. He's mentioned in the Quran. Do you know how many verses? 93 verses he's mentioned in the Quran. 16 times he is called Isa bin Maryam, Jesus the son of Mary, identifying him. 11 times in the Quran he is called the Messiah. And in chapter 3 and verse 46 in the Quran it says, He, Jesus, shall preach to men in the prime of manhood and shall lead a righteous life. 
disloyal disciple Judas, I have sinned in betraying somebody who is innocent. I have sinned, not he. Number 11, again something that's very unique. How many of you can look into your lives and bring up a clean slate from the time you can remember? I sink before I start. There's nobody who can stand even five minutes of scrutiny here in this hall. Nobody. And yet this man, he looked at his bitterest critics who were thirsting for his death and he said, which of you can point one sin in me? And this is the only time in history that we find that the answer is silence. Which of you convicts me of sin? Compare that with Kung Xu. Kung Xu is a Chinese name. His Western name is Confucius, the founder of Confucianism. He said, how dare I claim to be a sage or a benevolent man? How dare I make a claim like that? And yet he said just the opposite. Can any of you find a fault in me? Now that's his words, but they are backed by a judicial process. Number 12, the Sanhedrin was not only a religious body, it was also a civil and judicial body. They needed a quorum. For passing of death, the quorum needed was at least 23 judges or members of the Sanhedrin. They had a full council with 70 members plus one, the chief priest. We don't know. There's an indication that the full council was supposed to be called for that trial, but we don't know exactly how many of them. At least 23, because you need 23 to sentence to death. So 23 bench judge. They knew the Torah from the first word of Genesis to the last word of Deuteronomy. They knew exactly what to do to get him to be sentenced to death. And in that open trial, they called witness after witness and somehow could not find it. The charges were not sticking. And then against the rules of the Jewish tradition, the chief priest himself steps down. He's not supposed to do that. He's not supposed to take part in accusation at all. But he hushed everyone and said, I've got to take it upon myself now. And he turns to him and puts him under oath. And he asks this question, are you then the son of God? Why that shift? Why not what did you do or what did you not do? 23 judges at least bringing all the witnesses they possibly could, could not find one single fault in this man. And therefore the chief priest changed the whole direction, not what did you do to who are you. And this is arguably the first time in judicial history that an open court has handed down the death sentence, not for what a person did or did not do, but who he claimed to be. Never before has anybody handed down a death sentence like that. Why the change? We have said it. Because they could not find anything wrong in anything he had ever done. In these 12 statements, you will find a life that is entirely different from every other on earth. They are not just his friends. Some were his enemies. Some were his for foreigners. Some from another religious book. The Quran, how many more testimonials do you want? All the testimonials say the same thing. 
he lived a life that was perfect and therefore when I looked at all of these I had to confess and acknowledge to myself that here and here alone did I find a man in whom the theory had met its match in practice in whom the teachings had found their final fulfillment in real life and therefore the only life that I can really legitimately say lived to an unblemished perfection and therefore based on that he is the only founder who can look you and me in the eye and with perfect right and perfect credibility say follow me no other founder has that right because if you followed anybody else you would still fall according to their own teachings except this man at this point I stopped and I said look he is running off too far ahead and the book also is way ahead am I pushing them ahead I will gain nothing if I were doing that and so I stopped and I said let me look for something in which he does not come out first the next three are those he comes out anywhere but first birth and parentage Hinduism, there were multiple authors, no specific founder. All the authors were revered individuals born to honorable parents. In Buddhism, uh, Gautama Buddha was a prince because his father was a king, Sudhodana, and his mother Maya was a queen. He was born in a wonderful place and there was great rejoicing because a prince, heir to the throne, had been born. Judaism, a man of the house of Levi, went and took as wife a daughter of Levi and bore a son. She saw that he was a beautiful child and he became her Pharaoh's daughter's son. Levi, good pedigree. Later on it was to become one of the most important tribes in Israel in charge of the tabernacle. So by birth and by adoption, real good pedigree. Islam, posthumous son of Abdullah, his mother Amina of the tribe of Quraysh, the clan of Hashim. Again, the tribe of Quraysh was not the most powerful or the largest but it was extremely important because it's the tribe of Quraysh that was in charge of the Kaaba, which is the most sacred site today where you go for pilgrimage to Mecca. And so back again, the background of these people and their birth is really good. Until you come to this man, after his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child. Now where did she put the child? And we use the word manger as if it's something very beautiful. And sing a story about this manger. Look, a manger is just a feeding trough. That's all it is. There's nothing glorified about a manger. All straw sticking here and there. Dirty place. Dirty cattle. Nothing clean there. He's the only founder who was born amidst poverty-stricken circumstances. And worse, he's the only founder to have been conceived out of wedlock. It dogged his days. Fact. When he went to the temple, the top brass and the elite in the temple said, look, we were not born of fornication like you. Who are you trying to teach and what are you trying to teach? Morals and ethics? You? We were not born of fornication like you. Just get out of here. How is that for a start? To form a religion? Start by being born like this? Do you know what his name is in the genealogy of the Jews? When you come to so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, in the Jewish writings, these are the words. So-and-so, son of a bastard, son of an adulteress. Yeah, you can read it today. 
It's there. Those, that's how they described him. His start at birth was the worst of any founder. There's no question about it. Yet some questions remain. How come he developed a following? Because if you are born in those circumstances, it meant that the blessings of God was not on that family. In fact, it was a deep moral stain to that family to be born like that. Today it may be okay, but not first century Palestine. How did he develop a following? We don't know. Maybe we do later on. The other question really is very <laughs> intriguing. Why did they call him leg illegitimate? They, 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 knew, they knew who his mother was. What was the problem? They did not know who his father was. Nobody could identify his father either in this village or the next or the next. In that context, his claim that his father was God still stands. All because you call him illegitimate. How about the length of ministry? Hinduism, many generations, years and years, centuries. And today they have a highly organized society and a population of nearly one billion. In Buddhism, he started to preach at the age of 35. And at the age of 80, he laid down his life. 45 years. At the end, they have an organized society of sanghas and monasteries and a preaching mission all over the world. Today, their population is more than 405 million. Judaism, Moses led the children of Israel for 40 years. And at the end, there was an organized nation, specific rules, health rules, civic rules, and all the rest, and armies as well. And today, the population is tens of millions. In Islam, his first vision was in 610, and he died in 632 AD, a period of 23 years in which he had so many visions and messages, and then got together all these tribes and made them into one mighty big nation, armies, well-trained, Finally, that became the mighty Ottoman Empire. Well organized, population more than a billion. Saw those numbers? 45, 40, 23, many generations. Look at this number here. That's all he had. Three and a half years. How long does it take to make a statement to the world? 25 years, 30 years, 45 years. Who, who gets only three and a half years to make a statement to the whole world? And why three and a half years? The answer to that is a truly pathetic picture. It was three and a half years because he was driven out of his community, booted out, and sentenced to death by his own community. That's why three and a half years. He didn't fall sick and die. He was booted out. The worst picture, the shortest ministry. Yet some questions remain. What was he, just a carpenter by trade who turned into an itinerant preacher going from one village to the other that's all he was three and a half years that's what he did and at the end of three and a half years died kicked out of his community and today has the greatest following the world has ever known somebody got to answer me something on that circumstance at death the sages were honored in Hinduism at their death, today they are revered and held in very high respect. Buddhism, he died in Kusinara, surrounded by dis his disciples who strained to catch every one of his last words. The body was wrapped in 1,000 layers of finest Banaras cloth and cremated. Banaras today is Varanasi, and the cloth is actually silk. 
You've seen some of these Indian women wearing their saris. They're about six meters long. That, that silk from Varanasi, you can wrap up that six meter long sari and put it into a little matchbox. That's how fine that silk is. And so to say to wrap him in 1,000 layers is to say that we have given him the highest honor possible. Umar, when, when Muhammad died, he said, I was dumbfounded and fell to the ground. Why? Because a great leader had gone. And the people hurried ashen face to the mosque and everywhere was heard mourning and weeping and slapping their faces and their chests and hands. Why? Because they wanted to show the utmost respect to a departed leader. When it came to Judaism, Moses was 120 years old when he died and the children of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab for 30 days. State mourning. President in office has died. Swing the flag mast to half mast. Everything paralyzed, 30 days. What for? To show respect and honor. Till you come to this man, how did he die? He was crucified with two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left, and he was numbered with the criminals. Worst death. Pierced through with nails. Whipped, his back bleeding, a spear thrust into his trunk. Is that a way to die? Look at every other founder. They died honorable deaths except for this man. A criminal's death. Not only did he die with that physical suffering, look at what he said. In the ninth hour, he cried out with a loud voice saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Who can start a religious tradition who at the end of his life said these words? And yet he started something. And so, why did the Jews wanted him to be crucified, do you know? What is actually the punishment for blasphemy which they charged him with? Blasphemy is supposed to be punished with stoning, not hanging on a tree or being crucified. But they specifically asked for it because in their own Torah it says, if a person is, is hanged up to die, you shall surely bury him that day so that the, you do not defile the land for he who is hanged is accursed of God. That was the final evidence to any Jew that you should never ever look at him or follow him at any time. So he was sentenced and condemned and sentenced to death by the highest religious authority in his nation, the Sanhedrin the highest civil and judicial authority in the world at that time, which is Rome, and the highest authority in the universe, God. What can be worse than that? And the evidence was there for anybody to see. Look at him hanging there. And what does the hanging mean? He is cursed of God. We didn't do it. God did it. And yet some questions remain. This criminal. If he really was only a criminal who met at this awful fate. How come some of the most talented musicians have written some of the most moving symphonies on earth with some of his topics? Were they so captivated by a criminal? How come some of the best painters in the world, the most talented sculptors in the world, have chosen themes from his parables and you can see them in some of the 
most pre prestigious museums in the world. People travel thousands of miles just to go and have a look at them. In all the natural disasters on earth, there is no other group that can match the rapidity, the effectiveness, the zeal, the self-sacrifice when they go and help those unfortunate ones in any natural disaster, in any war, than this group that call themselves by his name. Nobody else can match that. If you started an institution of learning, would you want to put the name of a criminal in the central building of your university? And yet, some of the most prestigious universities started out in this criminal's name. I've seen them in my country, people who follow this lamb. They come there and walk out, not where I live, but out to the boonies, to the villages, sit down on the floor with them, lie down and eat and, and sleep over there, eat their dirty water and drink their dirty, eat their dirty food and drink their dirty water and get diarrheal diseases and die. And then they're buried in little mounds just on the side of the road with not even a name tag nearby. And when you ask them, how come you leave your air-conditioned homes far away? Leave your family and go to the wilderness like this and die with nobody ever giving you any acknowledgement at all? And they point to a half-naked body on the cross. I tell you, it makes no sense at all. How come if he was just a criminal, people have put him in the middle of civilized history that has split history into two, B.C. and A.D.? Who put him there? Every time you write a check, you write a check and date it. You date it to the birth of a criminal. Is that it? Yeah. Don't you think there is something else going on here? Yeah. There has to be. We saw just a little while ago that he was the most innocent of all the founders. He was the most perfectly lived life on earth. Then did cosmic justice go bad? That the best has to die the worst? We're going to see that in the last session tomorrow. Because we must answer that. In our systems of justice, yes, sometimes justice can go bad. We can get a wrong piece of information and the judge can give a wrong judgment and an innocent can go to die. But did ultimate justice, ultimate cosmic justice, did that go awry? We'll answer that. But for now, look at the questions that come up if he died just as a criminal and that's it. So he's the only founder to die a violent, shameful criminal's death. And so we've finished nine questions. Three to the writings and six to the founders. The first three what is the highest claim you make for yourself? What's your message and mission? And did your life match up to its teachings? And the next three, what is the circumstance in your birth? How long was your ministry? And what are the circumstances at death? And now we have to turn to the tenth one. What happened after death? We have 10 minutes, 15 minutes. Who's keeping time? 18 minutes, right? Yeah, it's, it's actually 4.45 when we stop. We'll start this one and we'll finish it tomorrow. We can't finish the whole thing, but it's good to start and you know, have a little leeway tomorrow. Post-death, 
In Hinduism, there's cremation, mourning, and scattering of the ashes over and into the river Ganga or Ganges, the holy river signifying a merger with the eternal. And then when you do that, you take some of the ashes and then you form memorials and shrines. In Buddhism, for some days, they worshipped the relics with utmost devotion and divided into eight parts. One they kept for themselves. The seven others were handed over to seven kings and they erected in their capital cities stupas or memorial mounds for the relics. That was post-death scene. Took the relics, put it inside there and made shrines and memorials. Islam, after Muhammad died, it was a succession. Here's a succession. Abu Bakr was the first caliph and then Umar, and then Uthman, and then Ali. So when he died, the others took on the reign and carried on the movement. Judaism, so Moses died, the land of Moab, and after the death of Moses, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun. So Moses died, and another leader came up to, to carry on the movement. When you come to this man, he says, Ooh, Lo, I am with you. I am he who lives and was dead. Really? I am an inquirer. I'm a rational thinker. I try to reason out things. You're telling me he died for three days and rose up, give me a break. Who I've not seen anyone. Look, I am I'm an ER doc. And so I have had people die in the emergency room because they just had a heart attack maybe outside there. And when the EMS truck comes in, they're already dead. I never tell the family, come back tomorrow morning. Let's see if he kind of gets up again. Any of you try to do that? I have not. So what is the story about a man who died and rose up again? Does it make sense? It's believable? It's unbelievable. But we mouth it. Same story again. Why is Christianity and the Christians so lukewarm and weak? We do not believe that a man died and actually rose up. We say it. We don't believe it. We are indicted. Because we go straight to the believing mode. Were you here the first session? Anybody? Yes. yes? What are you supposed to do before believing? Inquire. We jump to the believing. Go past the inquiry. And therefore we cannot believe fully if you don't inquire. That is why when you want to do really a statement that is based on a foundation, you cannot go either to unbelief or belief. You must first go to inquiry. And if you cannot believe, you must say you cannot believe. I can't. As an inquirer, I can't believe this story. But it is written in the best attested ancient writing in the world. It is historical. It is not mythological. It is not legendary. I am stuck again. I cannot believe it. I can't throw it out. So what do I do? Inquire and do some little study and see. And the first thing you really look at when you look at that is the meaning of the resurrection is a Christian talk. But whether or not it took place has nothing to do with Christianity. 
It has to do everything with just history, that's all. Did it take place or did it not take place? This is what Wolfert Pennenberg said. Whether the resurrection of Jesus took place or not is a historical question. And so the question has to be decided on the level of a historical argument. And we cannot be half-hearted about it. Because it is either the greatest miracle or the greatest delusion which history records. Are you with me? Where are we? We are neither at the delusion side nor are we at the miracle side. We are, we are kind of trudging along somewhere in between. Haven't taken a stand yet. When I looked at that, I said, wow, this is written 2,000 years ago. Is there anything that I can, you know, weigh out? Until I read this word by Wilbur Smith and I was so happy about it. Look at his words. Let it be simply said that we know more about the details of the hours immediately before and the actual death of Jesus than we know about the death of any other one man in all the ancient world. Wow. Look, there were princes and there were emperors and there were generals who died. This man was a carpenter by trade. He went from village to village on bare feet, just talking to some here and healing some diseases there. And there's more about his death than about the military generals and the emperors of his day and before. There is, we know more about the burial of the Lord Jesus than we know of the burial of any single character in all of ancient history. So I said, good. If that's the case, then I can weigh out some of the statements that they have made and see if there's some credibility over there. So to keep us in a mode of inquiry and not disbelief, because the initial response is one of disbelief, we must follow Aristotle's dictum. The benefit of the doubt is to be given to the document itself and not arrogated by the critic to himself. Why? Because you were not there. So don't start off by saying they told a lie. That won't be fair. So you tell lies all the time? No, you don't. Then why, do, why should they? No, we don't start off that way. In fact, we all must listen to the claims of the document or analysis and not assume fraud or error unless the author disqualifies himself by contradictions or known factual inaccuracies. In other words, check it out. If it is something that contradicts itself over there, then throw it out. But if there's a consistency in the story, then weigh it out honestly and give it the weight it deserves. So, if the story is said to be unbelievable, and is it unbelievable or believable to you as an inquirer? Unbelievable. unbelievable. Thank you. Some of you are not sure because a teacher or somebody is waiting there to see what you'll answer. If you are an inquirer and you hear about a person being done to death and rising up this third day, friends, you must honestly say that's an unbelievable story. That's it. And yet, like I said, it's written not in a mythological writing. Therefore, we can toss it out. So, if the story is said to be unbelievable, what could the correct story be? And remember the reason why we are saying it's unbelievable because it strains our sense of reasoning and logic and rationality. So any correction should fit in with the rest of the story. It should not strain our sense 
of reasoning. What are the alternatives proposed? There are about 10 or 11, I boiled it down just to two. The alternatives to what really happened, he did not die, he only fainted. This is called the swoon theory. He lost a lot of blood in pain and only fainted. And they took him down from the cross and laid him in the tomb and in the cool reviving atmosphere of the tomb, he rose up again. Number two, he did die, but he did not rise. The body was stolen and that's why we have the empty grave. So those are the two proposals made. Does the story, can we fit the story into either of them? He did not die. Swoon theory. Let's go ahead and finish this if we can. What were the writings at that time? For example, Mark. Now Mark didn't know that I was going to ask this question 2,000 years later. And still he wrote down something that are quite pertinent because he is making a point there. Look at that. Pilate marveled that he was already dead. Why did Pilate marvel? Do you know how long it takes for a person to die who is crucified? An average of three days. Some people have been known to hang there for six and seven days and then die. This man died in six to nine hours. So naturally, Pilate said, hey, wait a minute, you're asking for his body? I can't give his body. People die after three days, and you're asking for his body now? And so he marveled that he was already dead, and he didn't want to give the body. So what he did was summon the centurion. He asked him if he had been dead for some time. So when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. So Pilate made sure with his own way, that he was dead. How did the centurion check that out? In the book of John, when they, the soldiers, and the others came to Jesus and saw that he was lifeless, or still, they did not break his legs. But how to bring him down? It's too early for death. And if we bring him down and he's still alive, it'll be a shame to the whole Roman Empire. This big empire couldn't put a bitty little peasant to death. And so the Roman centurion, he said, I will not bring him down until I am sure that he is dead. But I don't know, he looks dead, but I'm not sure he, whether he is dead. And he calls the soldiers, bring your spear. One hit, make sure he is dead, then we'll bring the body down. Now you know why the spear was hit. The centurion was just making sure that the body was dead. That was the reason why they thrust the spear. If he had not died of crucifixion, he would have died of that spear thrust. And then it says something else. And immediately blood and water came out. What is that? So I, being a physician, looked for some physiological answers to that. There is. For one thing, it has been known that the heart muscle can rupture in the deepest forms of grief by itself. It'll just crack open. The grief is too heavy. The tension is too much. He didn't die of crucifixion. He died of a ruptured heart. And when the ruptured heart, when that rupture takes place, 
the covering may not tear and so the blood can form a pool in that covering and inside the covering is fluid it's called pericardial fluid and when you mix pericardial fluid and blood you might have a portion of that blood clotting out so the clotted portion will be red and it leaves the rest an unclotted portion will be serum which is clear it takes place after a period of time it could have also just stayed there and the blood cells settle out slowly it's called sedimentation and the spear would have thrust at the junction and got two streams both these processes sedimentation and clotting require time and it requires that the blood is absolutely still if the blood is in circulation they will never separate out and so we have the information now Pilate asked has he been dead for some time and we have the evidence now when you look at that he the, the blood had stopped flowing for some time only then will it separate out he who has seen has testified John was not a physician and so he wrote the word water but you know when a person layman who just writes those words it, it's a strong testimony he was not trying to make a case in other words he was just seeing what happened and that's it and wrote it down today as a doctor we can know that there's a possibility of explaining it not John he just wrote what he saw and so it would tell us that the blood had stopped flowing what about the fact that of his escape think about him escaping he had just been pierced in his palms or wrists and feet or ankles his back was whipped gouged out flesh there his side was pierced by a by a spear if it was 24 to 48 hours later that's the time when the swelling and the pain would be absolutely maximum and then he was wrapped in grave clothes according to their tradition and so let's imagine the story then if you are saying that he rose up by himself after being come alive how did he unwrap himself no answer because wrapping is like this how did he unwrap himself no answer how did he identify the tomb's door in the darkness how did he identify exactly where the seal was because the seal was on the outside how did he know where it was to break it from the inside how did he roll away the stone look his hands were painful his feet were painful that stone called golel in the book of mark in the greek of the book of mark requires multiple people to move it how did he move it how did he move it without making a single sound how did he move it for exactly that period of time when every guard was off guard and then how did he walk out with none of them chasing him at all he went out hobbling he couldn't run nobody catches caught him 
just think of the impossibility of that story itself. You have not answered any questions. Number five, who all thought him dead? The Roman centurion thought him dead. The Roman governor Pilate thought him dead and that's why they agreed to give the body. His own friends thought him dead and that's why they brought embalming spices. Do you embalm somebody who's alive? You don't. The substances you use for embalming will make a return impossible. If you're his friend, you don't do that. If there's a chance for him to come back, hey, hold your embalming stuff, he might come up again. But they all thought he was dead. So 2,000 years later, why is anybody now saying he was alive? His enemies and his friends thought him dead. We stop. And go to tomorrow to start that, the second one. His he died, but he didn't rise. His body was stolen. And with those words, we bid you today's close. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.